the Lord. Well, as we've been moving through Genesis and into Exodus, we've been telling this story of how the original intention for creation was was dist- was shattered by, by Adam's disobedience, how that God had intended a good creation with blessing for humanity and a place where God and humanity could dwell together, and that Adam's sin wrecked all that, and that since that point, God has been working through human history to try and restore that relationship and that, that nature of creation. We've talked about the, the various things that the humans have done for evil that God has turned for good. And we've talked about his finally choosing one family in Abram and his descendants to begin his work of redemption through, that he would bless them and through them would bless all of creation. We talked about how it came, how Abraham's grandson Jacob had 12 sons. They became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel and went into Egypt. And last week we talked about the bad situation they were in in Egypt. And we, we finished last week with that verse that it said, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them at the end of chapter 2. And the answer, the, the way that God chooses to address this concern is through the calling of Moses. Now we've talked before that when you see themes repeated in the Bible, they're important and they should call to mind the last time you, you heard something like that. So at the beginning we get Moses Tending the flock. Well, if you're a good Hebrew boy hearing this read to you in synagogue, and this isn't the first time you've, you've heard the Pentateuch read to you, you're going to think, well, when was the last time I, I remember somebody being a shepherd looking after his father-in-law's flocks? And that may make you think of the story of Jacob, when Jacob worked for his father-in-law Laban to get his two wives and all the kids and, and his concubines. And in that story, you had Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau, who he cheated. Here you have Mer- Moses, who has fled from Pharaoh because he's killed an Egyptian. Both of them have gone to another place. Now, when Jacob goes to Laban, who's his relative, and and serves him, he prospers there. He becomes greater. In fact, when he comes back and is just about to meet Esau, when he prays to God, he says, he thanks God because he says, you know, when I went to Laban, I was just me fleeing in the desert, but now I have become so prosperous that I'm two full camps. That is, that is kind of a picture of what's happened to Israel. Israel has gone into Egypt and they have prospered greatly there. They went in 12 sons in their households and they are coming out a nation. So you should have that idea in your head when you read this and you should go, aha, this is part of that same story. This is the same faithfulness of God that was working through the patriarchs is working here. This is, this is the story of the way that God is going to bless his people. It says, in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So we have this idea that there is a messenger from the Lord. In in Hebrew, it would be malach. Um, 
actually probably Malach Yahweh there, um, this, this messenger of God, which is attracting Moses' attention. The interesting thing about this is this is the messenger that God is using to get Moses' attention. Moses is going to turn around and he is going to be the messenger of God to Pharaoh to get Pharaoh's attention to achieve the ends that God wants. And we're introduced through this, this miraculous fire that doesn't burn up the bush. There's this sense that God so transcends the nature of the universe that God can do things like set a bush on fire and it won't burn up. At many times in the history of the church, this is going to be a very popular image to show you that something out of the ordinary is happening. You'll, you'll get these wonderful Welsh Christian tales. One of their mo motifs they use a lot is you'll come up to a tree and half the tree will be on fire and the other half will be green leaves. And that, that lets you know that you're, you're moving into the realm of something else. And here, this, this lets Moses know that he's, he's moving into the the realm of, of differentness. And of course, God confirms it because he calls Moses. Moses, Moses, Moses says, yep, I'm here. And God says, take off your shoes because the ground you're standing on is holy. A lot of ideas with holiness. And, and sometimes we think holiness just means like really good or not evil in the extreme. At its root, holiness means different, set apart, separated from. That's why God is the most holy. God is the most different thing in creation. Well, and God's not in creation. God is the creator. He's separate from creation. He's set apart from creation. So he's letting Moses know that when you're meeting with me, you're not dealing with the world. You're not dealing with things the way the, the world does. He's telling him, this is part of that story. This is the continuation of what I've been doing with the patriarchs. You may have forgotten it. And indeed, we talked last time about Moses naming his child foreigner because he, he thought, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. And he, of course, meant it that he was no longer in Egypt. But he had forgotten that in the promise of God, Egypt was never supposed to be their home anyway. So even in Egypt, he was all foreigner. And this is God kind of reminding him, there's a story here. You're not an Egyptian. That's not your home. You, I know you've been living there. It is not your home. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are impressing them. Okay, this begins and ends with two verses that sound, verses 7 and 9, sound like, like God. 
but he's he's I had this plan all along, and now I'm going to bring you out in accordance with my plan. And that would be true. He had promised Abraham way back in Genesis and the covenant there. He had promised him that his children would go into Egypt and be slaves there, but would come out again. He could have said, hey, this is all according to the plan. But he didn't say that, even though it was true. He said, I have heard and I have seen. And he repeats it. He says, I have heard and I have seen. There is sense, this sense that, yes, God is doing it because it's part of the plan he's always had, had, but he's also doing it because he has heard the cries of his people and he has seen their plight and he is moved by compassion for them. So it's not just a dry predestinarian thing. It's not just, you know, it's written and it'll be that way. It's, no, I know your pain. I know what's going on, and I am going to rescue from it, you from it. And he's actually going to use this language of the land flowing with milk and honey and describing the tribes that live there twice, which is also, every time, every time you see something repeated, you know it's a, an important point. One of the things that he is pointing out to the Israelites, if they'll pay attention, is that the same God that's going to deliver them from Egypt is going to bring them into this land. And he mentions there's already tribes there, but it's okay because he's bringing them in. When they get to the promised land, they'll forget that part of the promise. They will come fresh from being delivered out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army being drowned. And then they'll go to the promised land and look at the tribes there and go, oh, we can't beat these guys. Now, it's interesting to note that there is no nation in what will become the nation of Israel. There's no people dwelling there that is anywhere near as powerful as the Egyptians who they will already be delivered from, but it's still enough to make them quake with fear, even, even having the history of what God has already delivered them from. I take great comfort in that because one, one of the true things of, of a Christian walk, at least in my case, I'm going to assume you all are much more mature Christians than me, but in my case is that no matter how many times God has delivered me out of things, God has worked things out when I didn't see, see how things could change, no matter what deep revelation of God's character God has shown me, I have the attention span of a cocker spaniel, and I'm just like, ooh, squirrel. And when the next thing comes along, I'm, I'm right back going, oh, I don't know how I can, how I can uh, face this. My, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite musical groups of all time is a band called Daniel Amos. They're, and uh, they have this wonderful song called I'll Get Over It. When I first thought it, it was like, oh, you know, recovering from something. And no, it's talking about exactly this. You've just dumped something great for me, God, but, but I'll get over it. And, and that, is, that is just a tendency of the Christian walk. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, a couple things here. One, Moses, do you not remember you were, you were raised in his daughter's household? 
You're not exactly a stranger to him. But he does have a point. Because at this point, Moses is a shepherd, just shepherding sheep in the desert. And one thing we'll remember uh, from the account of Jacob and his brothers, or Joseph and his brothers, rather, uh, coming into Egypt is that they settled apart from the Egyptians because shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So this is, you know, if you were going to pick your ambassador to Egypt, you might not pick a shepherd. This is kind of like if we were to enter into negotiations with Russia about something and we, we sent a garbage man as our ambassador. Uh, he might not be received seriously and, and he might be t- it might be taken as an insult. But God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. A couple of things in this verse. If you're called by God, it doesn't matter who you are. God will be with you. If God calls you to do something, what matters immensely is not who's called, but who calls But I love this sign he gives him. He goes, I'm going to give you a sign. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you'll worship on this mountain. What must that feel like of Moses? I I could use a sign that it's really you that sends me. And God's sign is, well, after you've done it, you're going to come here. That's, That's a great sign in retrospect, but probably not the sort of thing that's going to just fire you up going into it. So Moses very naturally goes, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what? A couple of things. They've been in Egypt a long time, so they might have forgotten the name. But also God is going to use this opportunity to give them a bigger picture of himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. I don't mean to laugh. It is very hard for me to read this in the Bible without dropping into Popeye's voice. Hopefully everybody's of the right generation to remember Popeye. You know, I am what I am. Um, It's totally sacrilegious, but it happens every time I read it. To you. In Exodus 6.3, it's going to talk about this, and God is going to say, you know, that I was the God of your fathers, but they knew me as the Lord God Almighty. They did not know me by the name I am. The Lord God Almighty is a great title. It's like you're the, the biggest God, like our God is the biggest God. Yay, our God can beat up your God. But if that's your revelation of God you may just think you have the best version of whatever everybody else has. But what God is saying here is that he is, he is the ultimate reality. He always is. He is not, I was, he's not, I will be, although he was and he will be, but to him, that's all still, I am. But there's a second dimension to I am that almost all the commentators will talk about I am also implies personal imminence. Because he is, he is also there, right then, with you. So he's not just your 
big chieftain, like the big Lord, but he is personally with you. I'm not going to camp out on that part too long, but sometimes you get deeper revelations of God when you're in deeper trouble. It takes circumstances that push you beyond yourself before you get a bigger idea of who God is and what he intends for you. So he tells him, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Again, he's hammering that. I have seen. I know what's going on. Again, he's not just saying this is according to plan, but he's saying, I am concerned for you and I'm watching over you. And I have promised to bring you up out of Egypt. Again, he's going to give that promise that he's going to bring that flowing with milk and honey. He's a little optimistic in 18. The elders of Israel and they let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now that's what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. Now we know that when they leave, they're, they're not intending to come back in three days. But, but that's, that's how he's to present it to Pharaoh. But I know that the king of Egypt God can already tell, well, A, God's not bound by time, so he sees everything as the present. But B, he knows the nature of Pharaoh's heart. A lot of people, when we get to the plagues, a lot of people will, will notice the, the, the scriptures that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they'll think, well, that's, that's, not, that's not fair. You're hardening Pharaoh's heart. And, and you'll get scripture in the New Testament that says, for this purpose I raised up Pharaoh that I could show myself great. That, that's all true. But before God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. This isn't God just picking a random guy and going, ooh, you're going to resist me and get plagues. This is him seeing and fully knowing a human being and knowing what's going to happen and still God taking that human evil and working it for glory and for... So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptian with all that I will perform among them. Let you go. Part of this narrative... And this, this is really interesting where it talks about every woman to ask her. There's just a whole lot packed into that little statement. Which, just good summary of scripture. There's a whole lot packed into that little statement. I've, you often hear this treated as that they're, they're leaving like a victorious army because they're, they're looting the place they're leaving. The word that's translated plunder here is nowhere else in the Bible translated as plunder, except one other, one other occasion, and it's actually just retelling this story. That's the only time that word... Um, Natsal is, is translated as plunder. The vast, it appears 212 times in the Hebrew text, and three quarters of the time 
it's translated as deliver, rescue, save, save out of. So there's this sense not that they're looting the Egyptians, but they're taking material from the Egyptians that has a rightful use that it's being restored to, that this gold, this silver, this fine cloth has, has a real place and it's being returned to that place. And it's, it's just a, a minor little line in the narrative, but it's going to become incredibly important because there is a use that this is supposed to be being returned to. And we're going to find out farther on in the book of Exodus that that's not what the Israelites are going to do with that gold and that silver. And a story that's already dark and disturbing and sinful, when you cast it back to this verse and realize what was going on with that gold that they brought out with them, it's really going to hammer home kind of the level of their disobedience and their misunderstanding of what they're fundamentally called to do as a people. is all good, but what if they don't believe me? You know, what if they don't listen to what I say? And they say, hey, God didn't show up to you. Which is kind of prophetic because one of the, one of the big things that's going to happen in their time in the desert is people are going to question whether he's really the one hearing from God or whether he's the only one hearing from God. So Moses isn't totally off base when he says this, but the Lord gives him some things, some signs And I love these signs. God says, what's that in your hand? God knows what it is, but he wants Moses to name it. And he says, a staff. Cast it down. Moses does. Suddenly there's a poisonous snake at his feet and he has to jump away. It's like, oh, thanks, God. That's really reassuring. Okay, I got a poisonous snake. What what else you got to to make the Egyptians, make the Israelites believe that you sent me? He says, oh, you know, stick your hand in your cloak. Now pull it out. Oh, wonderful. I have leprosy. This will really help me. This ought to convince people. Yeah, stick it back in. Okay, it's whole again. And then the last one, take water, pour it out. It's blood. These are all miraculous signs. These are signs of a mighty and wonder-working God. But they are not signs calculated to reassure the sent messenger of God. Finally, Moses tries one more tact, and he goes, I don't speak well. You know me, God. I, I, I can't talk well. And finally, God gets angry because Moses has said, well, who am I that they'll listen to me? What if the people don't listen to me, and now I can't speak very well? And God says, okay, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? He's looking for you. I like that description, Aaron the Levite. He's Moses' brother. Surely Moses is Moses the Levite as well. Doesn't just seem like a great distinction to bring up to... That's just me, though. He says, what about your brother? He can speak for you. You can speak to him. You'll be like God to him, and he'll be like your prophet to the Pharaoh. And that is eventually what they will do. This is going to kind of... We're going to echo back to one other thing in Genesis, even though it's not a direct comparison. I'm just going to use the one to illustrate the other. 
When God called Abram and told him he was going to make him the father of many nations, he tried to achieve that by his own ends. His wife gave him her Egyptian slave, and he had a child by him, uh, by her, and the child was named Ishmael. And he said to God, well, why can't my son Ishmael be, be the child of the blessing? And God said, I will bless him. You know, absolutely, he's your son. He will get a blessing. I'll make him mighty peoples as well. So even though that happened, that wasn't the way God chose the line of Israel. He still had his son Isaac, but he did honor that. But the, the people descended from Ishmael always became a source of conflict to Israel throughout their history. Here, God is going to make provision for Moses' weakness and Moses' doubt by raising up Aaron but one of the things that's going to happen later on in the narrative is there's going to be a rebellion led by Aaron and Moses' sister who are going to say, hey, does God only speak to you? So God makes provision for this less than perfect way of achieving things, but it's, it's not going to be without friction. So at this point, God has appointed in answer to seeing the suffering, seeing and hearing the suffering of his people Israel, God has appointed Moses to be his means of redeeming the people. God hears. God sees. God knows. No matter what our, what our conditions are in the world, no matter what the circumstances of our lives, lives are, God sees, and God hears, and God knows. We don't have a Moses, but we know in the New Testament we have one greater than Moses. The Israelites, in the middle of their trouble, got a deeper revelation of God as I am. We, in the last days, have a complete revelation of God as Jesus Christ. So we know that whatever the circumstances we're in, God hears, God has an answer, and God's answer came through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you.